Welcome back, everyone. It's time for your mind to be on the mat with Maya, my yoga audio. I'm your host, Megan Morgan. And today's a Maya interview day, and Maya interviews and conversations are intended to be lively, informative, and health and wellness oriented to help support the yoga or yoking that the point of this show is all about and to help listeners find different avenues into healing. Today, we are so blessed to have the experience of Michelle Marlihan on the show. And what's exciting about this, to me anyway, is that not only is Michelle a yoga teacher, she's an expert on many things. And you know, I don't actually know her very well at all. In fact, we're meeting for the first time in real life today. Now, Michelle, I did come to meet you in air quotes through mutual friends and hearing about you for years and also through social media. I did go to It's All Yoga when I first moved to Sacramento six years ago, but I don't believe we ever met that way, which is amazing to me. I've been finding that your posts and course offerings are incredibly soothing, giving and loving. And that resonates with me very much, and I suspect many others in our community as well. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome. So I asked Michelle to kind of give me a little intro into what she's all about and what she wants our listeners in the world to know about what's happening in her life right now. And she said... Having taught yoga for over 20 years, it has become the lens through which I see life. What started as poses on a mat has become equally about consumer choices, honest conversations, how I view and treat myself and others, and so much more. I currently offer yoga classes that include asana, pranayama, and meditation, as well as seasonal workshops on general health and wellness. Everything I offer acknowledges the full cycle of life, which includes death. So it's not uncommon to be in touch with our grief as we make a practice of welcoming all our parts of ourselves to the party. My four-month immersion called Depth is the Remedy is a program that invites women into the oldest and wildest parts of themselves. It's a spiritual practice curriculum that I call yoga but it could also be called psychology, mythology, and somatics. I speak the language of sensitive introverts and misfits, and I love the magic that happens when we find each other on the path. I love that. That is beautifully, beautifully stated. Thank you. I, I really struggle to describe what I do because... For a long time, just to say that I'm a yoga teacher didn't feel like it was quite enough, but finding words to describe the essence of what I do, it, it's, it's, just, it's felt really challenging for me. I think you perfectly, I'm very excited reading that. If I were to be someone who didn't know anything at all about you and I heard that, I would definitely want to know more. So it's great that we're here to continue that conversation. And thank you for pulling that out, like doing that exercise to figure out the best way to describe what you do. Yeah. Thank you for asking me. It was, it was a really helpful exercise. Like, okay. And I, you know, in a marketing sense, I go through these things all the time and 
answer all of the questions and try to find my ideal client. (laughs) But sometimes just getting simple, you know, and just thinking, what is it that I love? What do I feel like I bring and offer? How does that come through? Who am I? And how am I showing up? Exactly. We showed up today. We're so grateful for that. And so we all know that this podcast is called My Yoga Audio. And I initially started with the idea of it being purely about practice, guiding people through foundational and physical poses of yoga. And I'm loving that part of it. But I soon realized that a big part of the reason I love yoga so much was because of the people, the teachers, the community that it brought me into. And as we know, there are eight limbs of yoga and they represent the limitless ways that yoga takes place on and off the mat. So I wanted to start off by asking three things and we can go back and forth if we get off track. But first, um, what was your first introduction to yoga and what was that like? And then how did you arrive at the decision to become a teacher and how has that journey been? And then lastly, just to help our listeners learn some more about the eight limbs of yoga, which limbs are most prominent in your life and or your teachings right now? Hmm, So. I began yoga in the early 90s, and I worked at UC Davis Med Center. It was a wellness, an employee wellness offering. And there were maybe four of us, and we would gather in a storage room. And (laughs) this teacher would come. um, I believe her name is Mary Beth. And she would teach poses. And I don't really remember that much about them other than, this is going to sound strange, um, I got a lot of positive feedback from her about the practice. And looking back now, I can see, oh, you know how we tend to like what we're good at? (laughs) So because I got this positive feedback from her, I became more interested. I think it was like, well, keep going. Oh, I love, you know, that feels good to go and move my body and, you know, pay attention in that way, but also she was lovely. I I just loved being in the class. So ultimately there was, she stopped teaching and there was a sub and this sub took Vasistasana side plank from a modified version on the knee Mm -hmm. into what we tend to call the full version, which I'm not a huge fan of, but the other version, (laughs) another version taking the bottom leg back and being on the feet rather than on one knee and one foot. And she introduced it some way saying, you know, oh, if you want to ramp this up, you could always take that bottom leg back. And I, it was like a light bulb or maybe even a firework went off for me. And I thought, oh, there is so much to this, so much more to this than I have previously known. And I want to find out more about it, not just the storage room version of, you know, what we've been doing. And I I think I brought up that positive feedback part because I have long limbs. You know, I was, I'm not an, I'm actually not a very quote unquote flexible person, but the yoga felt very natural for me. So I I think there was something that she could see as far as lines of energy and a clarity my body really liked yoga. And I hadn't found many things that I was physically good at. I didn't play sports in high school. You know, I just wasn't that 
sort of physically active and engaged person. So to be able to find something that I was good at felt really good. But it was also interesting that just because of the visual, she thought, you know, I, I got praise for the visual. And looking back now, that's sort of a teaching lesson for me that it isn't so much about the visible unless, you know, like I said, what we're seeing is a line of energy or a clarity that we think we can perceive um, and ease breath. But just because someone looks good in a pose doesn't really mean very much. But for what it's worth, um, it kept me going and it got me interested. And from there, I started taking more and more classes. I think the only place at that time that offered yoga was Healthy Habits Studio in Midtown on Jay. Oh. It was the only place you could find yoga. And look at us now. And look at us there. <laughs> and actually, the substitute teacher was Rose, Rose Zonfink, who owns Healthy Habits still to this day. And so I started going to that studio, and she had all kinds of fitness classes, but yoga was... She was a little ahead of her time, but yoga was kind of becoming a thing. And so I went religiously, and this is where it turns sort of into the teacher story. So I took a weekend yoga fit teacher training. That was my first introduction. Do you know yoga fit? I don't. I, I don't. Okay. That's probably better <laughs> <laughs> because it's one of those things that, can get a little eyebrow raised like, oh, okay, yoga fit. I think it's a little more legitimate now, but literally I took a weekend training and then I was a bona fide yoga teacher. Oh, okay. I yeah. understand. Okay. Yeah. And it was very scripted. You know, here's your script. Here's how to teach the pose. Here's what order to put them in. And, and that was fine. I mean, I didn't know anything else. So I started teaching. I actually started teaching there, 6 a.m., uh, mm -hmm. Two times a week, <laughs> my three people showed up twice a week at 6 a.m. And it was a really wonderful way to just kind of get my get my teaching feet wet mm -hmm. and start exploring myself as a teacher and, you know, that other aspect, not just yoga practice now. Now it was also teaching practice. And what was that like? Then I started going to a place called Free Spirit Studio, and it was out off of Fulton. And when I went there, I had the sense right away, oh, this is a legitimate. Like, you this can is, feel the difference. This is the real thing. And I'm not remembering her name right now. She taught in the style of forest yoga. Okay. Anna Forest. So very physical very warm, lots of sound effects, lots of noises, and lots of abs. It was a very different approach, but it really informed where I would go for the next probably decade of my practice and my teaching. Yeah, I, I became, I've always loved the body, really in awe of the body, just the way it works, the wonder of it. You can cut your finger and the body heals itself. You know, the body wants to be well. And I love that. I love the mechanics. It just loved, I love everything about our physicality. So I loved that really body-based yoga. 
and it helped me feel really strong. I had typically not thought of myself as an incredibly strong person. That wasn't one of my assets. But here I was feeling really powerful and doing poses that felt very fancy. And I really became immersed in the, in the yoga world and would travel and go to workshops and find well-known teachers and study with them. And it was an amazing time because I realized now I, I carry all of that in me even though I don't necessarily subscribe to some of that dogma, it was such rich experience and I think really makes the, like the quilt of my yoga life um, very expressive and vibrant. So I just was teaching more and more. And actually Rose, Rose was a big part of my growth as a teacher. She started giving me corporate gigs so I taught for a long time at VSP, Vision Service oh. Plan, for a long time. I still have people I know from there who, you know, will find me or will come to class. And it's so fun. And then I got a gig at a big law firm downtown, and I would teach lunchtime there. So it just kept growing and growing and growing. Then I started teaching at a place called My Yoga Lounge, which is now something else out off of Fair Oaks. And at that point, my then husband was saying, you know, why don't you open a place? You're not super satisfied with all these places you're teaching and you kind of have this different approach and you don't really fit in anywhere. Why not? And I was just like, no, are you kidding? I, I don't know anything about business. I had a job at the time I was a business consultant and so people think that I know business because it but that's just a title like really I, I didn't know anything not even the first thing about running a business but he was quite enthusiastic and when a vacancy came up in a little tiny old strip mall kind of thing by Sac City College the same street we lived on he went down and got the name of the landlord, called the landlord, got the application. Wow. And okay. brought it back to me and said, you know, I really think we should do this. It's here on our street. Um, you know, you can still work. I can help. And so it kind of became a family business. I opened this studio called It's All Yoga. And I mean, what a gift. It was probably one of the absolute top gifts and privileges of my life. It completely changed my life, my heart, my trajectory. And, and a lot of other people's having been uh, there myself too. So thank you for that. Well, I can I can I can own that and, and really acknowledge that finally that was hard to do. But I, I do see how the yoga community impacts us at such a deep level. And of course, you know, we don't do anything like that alone. So I had the idea, you know, my husband at the time had the idea. We followed through on it and and then together with so many other people built this really beautiful thing that still lives on. It's amazing. So, yeah, then I had the studio for 12 years and that had a lot of journey inside mm -hmm. of it, a lot of change, one of which was getting divorced. Mm -hmm. Well, I find it interesting that it started, your journey kind of started from that physical place. And I don't think you're alone in that. Mine definitely was too. I'm, 
the opposite in the sense that I'm very strong and I'm not naturally flexible. So yoga was this extra challenge of like making myself be flexible, but eventually learning the balance, right? It's the combination of strength and, and flexibility. But I feel like for most people, their journey to yoga often starts with physicality. But I love that you have that memory of Vashistasana or side plank pose being like, oh, there's so much more to this than this that you even knew in that moment before you'd done training. So of the eight limbs of yoga, the physicality, the asana, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, um, and the majority of people, unless they've done training of some kind, don't have an idea of yoga beyond the physicality. So we've mentioned community and not doing things alone and the things that come with the practice. So how are those things showing up, those other limbs showing up in your life or your teachings right now? The yamas and niyamas are always a big part of my life. Uh, I have loved those principles really since I learned about them so many years ago. And it's great because I am running two teacher trainings right now. And it's been good over the years to have a teacher training to really keep me immersed in some of those other aspects of the teaching. I would say, gosh, always ahimsa, ahimsa, nonviolence, kindness. And in these times, I mean, that's just a really hard one, a really important one. And I think it's so important to look at that on the spectrum of, you know, what is violence and these days that can seem really obvious, but where does it become more subtle and yet it is still a violence? It is still the opposite of kindness. The other thing I, I do appreciate about Ahimsa is sometimes, let's say you're, you have a decision. Let's say the decision for me of getting divorced. So getting divorced was a really crappy choice. Staying in the marriage was also a really crappy choice, you know, for all of us, all of us, meaning I, ha I had a stepdaughter, I have a stepdaughter, bonus daughter, as we refer to it. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was really okay. So if I have two hard choices, and neither are really that great, or feel like this big gesture of kindness, then it becomes which is the least harmful. And so that's an a, a question I feel like is a guiding question for me these days. What is the least harmful choice? If I don't have a choice or an option that feels really clear in kindness, okay, well, which am I going to choose that does the least harm? I love that because choices are never easy. We can have too much choice or we can feel like we have too little choice. But kind of breaking it down into those, those layers, right, of least harmful completely, completely makes sense. Um, and for listeners too, Michelle mentioned the Yamas and the Niyamas. There's a book by Deborah Dell, right? Is that yes. her name? Called the Yamas and the Niyamas. And that's, I mean, I think that's part of every teacher training almost as a requirement, but you don't have to be a teacher training to read it. It will teach you a lot about how you can learn more about these things. We'll continue to explore it on the show, but for you, so it's Deborah Adele, the Yamas and the Niyamas. And then one of the things that I also learned about you only recently is that you work closely with grief. And while we all deal with varying degrees of grief over the course of a lifetime, you recently hosted a virtual class that I attended and I really didn't know that I needed it. My parents both passed away when I was quite small. 
And I was always told that I shouldn't be sad about it because I could barely remember them. But I always felt both of them, their loss, both their presence and, and their life. Like I really felt this whole. And as a teenager, one of my uncles gave me two books. One was called Unattended Sorrow by Stephen Levine and then Motherless Daughters by Hope Edelman. And reading those books really helped me to see that I hadn't been able to tend to my sadness and it subsequently helped me to process it. I'm so grateful, so grateful for that gift of being able to say I was sad about them and moving through it. But to relate that back to your class, Michelle, what I found most revealing is that what I wrote down in your class and what I thought I was going to work on when it was over became two completely different things. And so working with a person like you, I found even virtually, really shifted my perception of what needed to be dealt with in my life. In our last interview here with, uh, on Maya with therapist Nicole Carter, one of the things she mentioned was that sometimes people come to her and they just don't want to talk about the big things, the crisis events. It's too scary at first anyway. So the question I guess I'm leading around to is, how did you come to include grief services and what you offer to people, how you recognize that need? And what do grief services with you look like for someone who might really need to take that step to, to work with somebody one-on-one? -on -one? And what could they expect when working with you? Well, firstly, deep bows to your uncle. How fortunate to have yeah. a voice to say, you know, this isn't the only way. And maybe, maybe the messages that you've been getting aren't quite accurate. Mm -hmm. And that's really probably what led me into doing this work. I mean, truth be told, nobody gets into grief on happenstance, right? right? Just on accident. So I'd always been, I have always been really at home in deep emotion, even craving those kind of interactions. I don't do superficial conversation very well. I really want deep conversation and meaningful connection with people. So that never intimidated me. I could always go there quite easily and hold space and be in my own experience of deep emotion. But then I, uh, in 2015, lost a child. And it was, I think like for many women, it was quite traumatic. We don't tend to talk about it very often. Child loss. Um, infant loss, pregnancy loss. So it, just as you're saying, the fact that we don't have a lot of language, a lot of permission, a lot of spaces where we can talk about these things really lit a fire for me that I wanted other women to feel like they had a place where they could speak in not in whispered voices, but, you know, really be able to talk openly about their experiences of loss and not even that I wanted to work with other women who had lost babies. It was all kinds of loss, you know, just grief in general, death in general, you know, we don't really know how to talk about it. So that's how that, you know, specific offering came through. And what working with me now looks like, I, I do some one-on-one -on -one work. Mostly, it really just shows up in everything. It shows up in class, um, in the po poem that I read, or in, you know, just how we're relating to impermanence in general. And 
When I work with someone, often we're working on the really practical things more through the Ayurvedic slant of, okay, are you getting any sleep? Are you eating regular meals? Are you drinking enough water? You know, just really basic care so that if the body is a little more regulated, then the emotional body is able to work through, you know, not necessarily work through, that is not the term that I like, um, just be with the emotional process of grief. I am not a subscriber to let's have the ceremony and, you know, release all of our grief and let it go and move on. I think it just becomes a part of who we are. Much like with you, you know, your parents died, but the relationship didn't die. Even if you were little and you didn't have a lot of vivid memories about them, even to this day, probably daily, you have relationship with them. You might talk with them or feel guided by behaviors and lessons that you learned really early or just the presence of who you know they were. So in the grief world, we like to say people die, relationships don't. Ah, that's so true. And I think as a kid, that's what I felt, that they were still around, but I didn't, I didn't know how to navigate what that relationship was. And when I, you know, in child speak, when you try to talk to somebody about that, right. adults are not prepared. They're going through, I mean, I ended up living with my grandparents, my mother's parents. They were, they are still processing their grief over losing her. So they didn't know how to deal with it. And what I love about work like this is that sets a pattern of change for people that, that, that grief is okay. That expressing yourself is okay. That's sitting with your emotions and just being in it and what that emotion looks like, whether it's hysterical laughter or tears or whatever it may be for different people offers that avenue to heal rather than just stuffing it down and, and not dealing with it. That's right. I think we tend to be afraid that if we let ourselves feel it, we'll get stuck there. Mm -hmm. It will be that way forever. And it's really the opposite, but that's hard to remember when we're in that really intense place. Yeah. It feels scary. And again, it's kismet. Our last guest, Nicole, um, Carter, the therapist, she was talking about that as well and saying people are afraid of big emotions, but they're there to teach us. There's so much we can learn from that emotion. Um, and one of the things you brought up was, was Ayurveda. So when I did my teacher training, the basics of Ayurveda were part of our learning module. And I know that Ayurveda is a comprehensive way of living and it can't possibly be summarized, you know, here in a short conversations, but there are a few things I remember most from that training and I try to implement as much as I can in my life today. And one is knowing your dosha and nourishing yourself accordingly. Another is eating fruit on an empty stomach for optimal digestion. Um, and if you have smoothies, I still remember this moment. She told us to chew the pulp uh, in them to activate your digestion. And that doshas have dominant seasons, which affects you and your dosha depending on the season. So now we're in in fall. And I just, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about Ayurveda and how you work with it and with your clients. Yes, it is one of my favorite things. It's, it, it too has become a lens and because it is based on nature. And I, I think this even ties back to the grief piece because, you know, nature knows the cycles of life, death, life. And 
So that's also present in Ayurveda, that things have seasons, things have cycles. And as it is based on the elements, that's another really helpful thing. Even if someone doesn't want to learn the doshas and, you know, those words that can be a little maybe awkward to try to relate to, you can just think of elements. We're all, we're made of the elements. And in, in slightly different than in traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, we work with air and ether, water, fire, and earth. And so let's say you have um, a rash. And let's say the rash is red and kind of inflamed and itchy. Well, that is more of a fiery kind of symptomology, right? It has kind of a, a fire element to it. Versus if you had a dry, really dry, kind of cracked rash, okay. that's, that's more of an airy, ether kind of symptom. So when we look at our symptoms in that elemental way, then we might get some information about how best to soothe or remedy it. So the red rash, well, that wants some cooling. You know, could that be even just a cool pack? You know, is that soothing versus something dry? Well, that probably wants some moisture, some oil. Uh, you know, we love our oil in Ayurveda, <laughs> oil everything. And if I could put in a plug for one practice, especially in autumn, it would be nausea, which is putting oil in the nostrils. And that's, it's my recommendation in all seasons to everyone. It can be a really grounding kind of practice. I love to do it before sleep. I do it several times a day, but really simple. You just, you could blow your nose. And then you can use any kind of oil. You can use olive oil, coconut oil. You don't have to buy the, you know, advertised nausea oil. And just put a little bit on your pinkies, rub your pinkies together, and then just smudge all around inside your nostrils and, and then give a little sniff afterwards. And it can be, um, as I said, really grounding and moisturizing. But right now it's important because this is dry season. This is Vata season. And as the nostrils, as we go through autumn and get into the colder months, that tissue can crack. And when it cracks, you know, then we're just more susceptible to the little invaders getting right in to the bloodstream rather than having that good protective barrier. So that's one of my favorite practices. And then I would just love to pitch one more thing that we tend to make our symptoms a part of our identity. So, you know, oh, I'm just a gassy person or I just have a bad stomach, you know, or I, I just, I get headaches. I just do like none of those are normal. And so if we can look at our symptoms truly as symptoms and, you know, like our emotions, symptoms are messengers of the body and then seek support, seek more information. You've um, reminded me the nausea. I used to make my own like special and I would put in roses from my yard and, you know, different yes. herbs. And now I just, I have so many different kinds of oils. So I just use that, but it's a great reminder whether you have, I have terrible allergies and living in the central Valley doesn't help that. But yeah, I love the power of oils and nausea, especially in this season of, of fall. And as we move into winter, are there any 
books, resources, or places you would direct people to find out? Well, I know they can work with you one-on-one, so that's always a great thing. But I don't know if there's any resources you've found to be particularly helpful that somebody who is totally new to this and wanted something kind of comprehensive or introductory. You know, I find just the Banyan Botanicals website really a great resource. They are great. And it's free. It's accessible. You can also take your dosha quiz there. That's right. Yeah. And And they have, they just have a great blog, a repository of all kinds of information on the seasons, on the doshas, on different ailments. So I would start there, really simple. That's a great idea. Another uh, yoga teacher friend of mine, Kendra, actually works for them. So, and she posts stuff all the time, just like simple recipes and, okay, I'm going to provide a link to her in the, the posts we do about this conversation too. Banyan Botanicals, I do actually subscribe to their email newsletter as well. Is there anything that you feel is imperative for people to know about health, about wellness, about grief, or about life that you've learned? And it can be more than one thing, but if there's anything inside you that's just kind of, people need to know this now. I think we all need to know that we're not doing it wrong. You know, we're not wrong. We're not doing it wrong. We're doing our best. And to have some self-compassion, take a self-compassion break. And when we can give ourselves that grace and that little bit of space, then we're more able to give other people that grace and that little bit of space. But I, I think that is such, it's such a, a rock in the shoe for all of us that, you know, maybe we tolerate, uh, we walk around with just this little feeling, this little irritated feeling of, oh, you know, I said that thing or oh, I, I'm just not doing it right. Someone else, everyone else is doing it so much better. And it's really important for us to know, you know, if we're earnest, we really are making our efforts and doing our best. There's, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with the ways that you're different. Those are the things that make you brilliant. Of that, no make wrong, and just doing the best that you can with the best of possible intentions. Beautiful. When I took your online class last month, I learned that you're really close to your animal family, cats and dogs, etc. And I completely believe that animals can sometimes be our greatest teachers and most loving family. I grew up totally terrified of dogs because I chased and bitten by them. But now I have two dogs that I love more than I can possibly express. And their very presence heals things every day for me. And I'm finding they primarily teach me so much about trust and gratitude. We had a stray show up on our doorstep in June. And despite searching, he's adorable and he's amazing and he's a puppy. And he was just abandoned in the park behind our house. We've come to pretty much figure out And I just couldn't not take care of this dog. And I didn't want to give him to the animal shelter, even though I called them. And over these last few months, he's taught me about trust and gratitude. So me learning to trust him because I'm initially very scared, despite how cute and little he is. But he'd obviously been through a trauma and he's communicated that to me. And now we're at the point where he feels part of our family. So tell me, what lessons have you learned from animals? 
Oh, so many lessons um, from my, I call them my faminals. Oh. <laughs> um, but it really, it started when I was very young. I grew up in a town of 700 people, really rural, middle of nowhere. And we had a bit of a farm. Um, we had cats and dogs and then rabbits and chickens and geese and ducks and horses. So my first best friend was my horse. And it it was probably one of the most prominent relationships in my young life, actually. And learning from him so many things, responsiveness, partnership, responsibility. That was a big thing growing up. It was part of our chores were, or my chores were, okay, go take care of the animals. And so every morning I was feeding them all. We would keep the, the chickens and geese and ducks in um, an enclosure in the barn so that they were safe at night. And so it was letting them out. And then every night, gather them up. They'd all go into the barn, lock the door, feed everybody. So, you know, it was this sense of responsibility that they're living, they're creatures. You know, they, they have needs. We take care of them. So that... That was a big part of growing up. Animals. I loved animals. And and then as I have become an adult, I've always had cats or a dog. And likewise, probably my two really prominent relationships have been my cat who lived to be 23. Oh, goodness. Really old. She was so, she was like my spirit cat. And then my dog who was my spirit dog, and she died about 10 years ago, but I still think about her and love her so much. And it's interesting that, you know, I have a dog now, and I love her, Pearl. She's the sweetest dog, but it's such a different relationship. You know, when I had Roxy, it was really like this soul kind of connection, and I can love Pearl, but it will never be like that. So it's kind of like with people, you know, just having these unique relationships with different creatures. and then I was actually, this, this is making me laugh because just yesterday I said to my husband as the cat magic got on my lap and started making biscuits with his little paws on my <laughs> arm, I said, you know, I was thinking how magic is so just forward and clear and kind of shameless about what he wants. You know, cats are like that. And, and I said, I think I need a little more of this, a little more of this just forthright Hey, this is what I need right now. I'm here. Love me. Hi. Yeah. You know, just kind of claiming what you need or want in the moment. And cats and and animals don't have all of the mind stuff that we have that gets in the way, the talk, the shame, the uh, self-criticism. They're just like, uh, hello, I want some pets. (laughs) Yeah. So if it could just be a little more simple, like this is my need. And of course you're going to, you know, want to meet it because you love me and I'm here and I'm wonderful. And I love that. It's, and it's also very here and now. Yes. One of the, they only live for this exact moment. So one of my daughters came home from college this weekend. It's her birthday. And so I told the dogs yesterday, I'm like, Josh is coming home today. And they immediately run to the door and look. <laughs> Right. Because they hear that name. Well, she must be here now. I'm like, no, tomorrow. And they're just like, oh, you know, head so tilt cute. side to side. They only understand this immediate moment. And yeah, they're like, when they want 
affection. Frida and Freddie are different, but Freddie will just come up to me and put his paw, like reach out, like, oh, and I've, re- I've learned that that means he wants pets. Right. Whereas Frida will just come and sit like right on your lap, you know, <laughs> right. like this is my space and this is what I want. So I love that forthright directness. They don't have the language we do to express these things. So they just right. use their bodies yes. and little sounds to say what they want. And then that teaches us, right? How yes. can we be more forthright and direct about what our needs are? Oh, I love that. So I know you have, and I love this name, a monthly wellness program called Remembership. And tell us more about that. What does it offer people and how can people join? I know when you're saying you remember you know, your other cat and how different that is. How does membership apply to people? I love the word remember because you can take it in its whole context or you can separate re and member. And I just, I love the idea of recalling, recollecting, recognating things that we have known but maybe have forgotten and also putting ourselves back together, you know, the fragmented parts that we might lose or forget or, you know, try to put in a box. Let's bring all of our parts back into this one experience, into wholeness. So that's the premise of Remembership. And it includes asana, recorded asana classes of varying lengths. I'm really trying to do shorter classes and then it's hard hard yeah. those 20 minute classes but it's great to be able to have practices that you know you don't have to be on your mat for an hour and a half like what do you have time for what fits in what do you need today and then meditation and pranayama practices and there's a an ayurveda section where i post things seasonally uh, and then um also resources Yoga resources, readings, podcasts like this. Oh, nice. Oh, that is exciting. And I love that it's kind of a, seems like it's a repository of information too, just in general. That's a resource that people can use to find out more about not just the work you do, but what others are doing and things that you use to inform your practice and your teaching. Exactly. I love that. Um, So, as part of their membership program, I saw that you include visualization and meditation audio recording. So you can know I was totally fascinated with what that experience might be like. And I wondered if you would honor us today with maybe a five minute experience right now with with one of those visualization meditations, just so listeners could have a little taste of, you know, more extension of your voice and what that experience might feel like. I'd love to. Generally, I do very simple meditations or um, somatic practices. I thought today we would do a little bit more of a visualization, just working with the body and the potential of stress and tension that is that exists right now at times. So, yes, let's get started. You can just get comfortable. It might be in a seat. If you are in a chair, your feet can be on the ground. Your arms can be relaxed. You could sit on the floor. You could lie down. Just we're really looking for comfort in the body. And if that includes a little bit of movement, maybe rolling the shoulders, moving the neck around, like just starting to come into your skin like, oh, right, living in here. What's this like? How's my body feel right now? 
And when the body begins to relax a little bit, then the breath can find its course with a little more freedom, a little more ease. You're not trying to breathe in any particular way. Just letting the breath be. And then for this practice, let your attention center in your chest. Sometimes we call this the heart center, or you could even just think of the anatomical heart, the energetic center of the chest. And as you observe that space in your body, notice what else is there. Is there sensation? You might even recall or let come to mind a difficulty that you've been having, some kind of challenge, some kind of heartache. And notice the response physically, the sensation that might accompany that stress or that memory. So sometimes these sensations, these stresses can accumulate in a way that we can actually discharge a little bit and feel a little relief from. So just out from your physical body, maybe a few inches up to six or eight inches out in front of your chest, picture in your mind's eye some kind of crystal or gem. It could be any kind of a precious stone or it could be your favorite kind of crystal. Just imagine it, see it floating out in front of you. It can be any size. See its color, its shape. And then you will imagine directing any of the discomfort or uncomfortable sensation or pressure or tension or however the sensation is living in your chest. Imagine sending that in a stream straight out into the crystal or the stone. This is an effortless thing. You can just visualize it and know that it is happening because it is happening in your mind's eye. And it's like you're infusing, you're fortifying this crystal or stone. It is not damaged. It is alchemized. Staying with that image 
of sending the sensation, sending the experience into the crystal, to the stone, and noticing how your physical experience changes. What happens in your chest? What happens to the sensations that were there? Are they still there? Different? You can actually do this practice anywhere in the body. So if you are having density and tension in your solar plexus or if you're having an eye twitch, you could put this crystal or this stone out in front of any part of your body and discharge the excess into fortify into that crystal or that stone so that you can release what is excessive or unnecessary in your own body and possibly feel things shift or open up, possibly feel more spacious in your own body. Notice what your breathing is like. there's anywhere else you need to want to release a little tension from your shoulders, from your jaw, just let that happen completely naturally. A deeper breath in. A long, complete exhalation. Feel free to bring a little bit of movement in. Could be shoulder roll or wiggling your fingers. If your eyes have been closed, you can just blink them open. Thank you. I went along with that for a few <laughs> moments here too, trying to keep connected with our recording, but also just wanting to for sharing that experience with listeners. Thank you. I loved actually when you mentioned the eye twitch or any kind of little or big thing in the body. I love the idea of just directing that energy somewhere else because we all have that. When I have eye twitches, I know it's because I haven't had enough sleep and I'm stretched, stressed. That's the first thing that happens. My eyes start twitching. I'm like, oh, I need to go to bed earlier right. or whatever. But in the moment, that's something that you can just try to ease that little bit of discomfort right then and there. Thank you. Thank you for that. You're so welcome. It is interesting the areas that our bodies pick up, like I'll store that for you. I'll hold on to yeah. that. You know, I'll, I'll hold that tension. And if we can just identify and love on those areas a little bit, offset any of that, like you don't have to hold it all. It's okay. We can send it out into the crystal. We can send, you know, the mind is so powerful. The imagine is to the mind not really that different than what's actually happening. Yeah. Oh, that's a wonderful remedy. Speaking of which, starting in January, you have a program called Depth is the Remedy coming up. And I know we just have a few moments left, but I know it's a four-month online community program. When I read briefly on your website, it looks 
a little comparable to a yoga teacher training in a way, but without the teaching part. So what does that schedule look like? What could potential registrants, excuse me, expect? You know, I advertised it last year as an equivalent to teacher training without the teaching. And then as the program happened, it's like, oh, I think it's something else. It's one of these really hard to describe things Mm -hmm. that does come more from psychology and stories, mythology, and the somatic piece. You know, we really work in the body. What are the stories we're holding in the body? And what are the stories we're telling ourselves mentally? So it's a great blend of things that are really practical and things that are a little bit woo woo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there's some yoga philosophy that shows up, you know, maybe Sutra 2.1 or something. Right. But it is not so much like a teacher training, although everything in it I offer in teacher training, but there's not that yoga per se. Well, yoga in my really big umbrella, but not yoga for most people who are looking for a program. Got it. So it's, it is four months. We meet weekly, virtually, and it's a small group, 12, up to 12 women. And as one of the women said last, in the last program, I don't know how suddenly these women suddenly felt like family. So the power of coming together is the power of community again. Yes. And seeing each other, being seen by each other, being honest, really bringing together all those fragmented parts. It, it is a program that feels like the synthesis of so much of what I do. I love that. It sounds like being vulnerable, but in a very warmly held container. That is a great right? way to say it. People of, of similar mindset and all are welcome sounds like to be their whole selves what is the best way for people to find out more about your offerings i'm assuming your website yes my website michellemarlihan.com okay and we'll we'll post in the social media posts that go out with this and on my website we'll definitely provide links to michelle's website and her instagram if you have a facebook page or anything like that we'll i'll get all that from you we'll make sure people can get in touch with you because they'll want and need to learn more after experiencing and hearing more from you today. Thank you so much for being here with us, Michelle, making the time. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm so excited about your voice and teachings being out in this podcast. It feels really fresh and important. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So in closing, everyone, just a reminder to keep in touch with me and all our platforms, all of our guests. We'll provide those links on Instagram, Facebook, the website. Um, There is a link on my website as well where you can sign up for an email newsletter. So promise I won't be spamming you with anything, just giving you links to resources that are mentioned in these interviews and with our guests. Also the special offers from the brands that I know and love that are offering you special deals if you want to try. So until next time, my friends, remember, listen closely, expand exponentially. It's always a good time for your mind to be on the mat.